our first guest rather, is someone I've wanted to have on the show for some time. Uh, this is uh, Adriano Espaillat. He's now in his second term. He's presented uh, New York's 13th Congressional District, which covers most of Harlem, Washington Heights, Inwood, and parts of the Bronx since January of 2017. He's a member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, chairman of the caucus's Task Force for Transportation, Infrastructure, and Housing. He's also a senior whip uh, of the Democratic Caucus and deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And earlier this week, he took the next step towards a new term, securing as of Tuesday night about 58% of the in-person vote in his bid for a new term. Those numbers might be a little bit different now uh, since we're now on Thursday. He held off two challenges that he had. The two challengers had uh, significantly less uh, uh that. So, Congressman Espayat, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me to your program. And I apologize for any tech issues. I hope you can hear me. Congratulations on your primary. Uh, you prevailed, you but so in, a number of, in a number of districts, we saw the progressive movement gain in strength. Can you talk a little about where you see the progressive movement going and how it's influencing the stances of candidates as they seek uh, office? Well, I think the needle is moving in that direction and uh, issues like the Green New Deal and police reform are critical to the future, particularly of young people, but people in general. And and I think that many candidates uh, are now going to have to be able to present their position regarding these very important progressive issues before they feel they could win an election. So uh, very much uh, trending in that way that the uh, the pendulum of politics is shifting in that direction, and, and I think it's a good thing. And as, as far as your campaign, what do you think voters do overwhelmingly support this? Because obviously, with this world changing, there are many issues that come to the fore in recent months. Yes, I'm sorry. If you could repeat the question again, I couldn't hear you. Oh, yes, uh, in yep. your race in particular, you know, I'm wondering what you thought brought such a, a healthy turnout for you, uh, because uh, in the minds of voters, so many of the issues uh, that might have been prominent months ago are not as prominent now, and others have taken, you know, have taken prominence. What do you think led people to support you in this case? Well, first of all, uh, I'm very happy that we had a very healthy turnout. Uh, one of the the largest turnout in the state. Uh, and I think that people in my district having representing, uh, representing Harlem, which is the, the capital, the diaspora, the capital of the African diaspora worldwide, East Harlem, which is sort of like the launching pad of the Puerto Rican Hispanic community in New York City, as well as immigrant Washington Heights, Inwood and working class uh, Northwest Bronx, these neighborhoods uh, feel uh, very strongly about these issues. And so when the marches were going on across the city, we know very well uh, what they were marching for because we have been feeling these issues for centuries. And and the, the resistance movement was born in our communities, uh, and we have been resisting for decades and decades. And so we understand this issue better than anybody else. And now that it's become uh, mainstream, if you may, uh, to talk about it, 
Uh, we we support it and we applaud it, but we felt the sting of this for many, many years, and that's why many of our folks came out to vote. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about two key topics today, and the first is the Supreme Court's decision uh, last week regarding deferred action for childhood arrivals. Uh, since then, the president had indicated that basically it's not over. What do you envision is going to happen and why? First, uh, the Senate should take up uh, the uh, piece of legislation that we passed uh, in the House uh, that resolve, resolves matter for DACA recipients. Uh, it's in their, it's in their uh, House, and we, they must take it up. And the president really has no business with it right now. If, if he does anything, it should be after he's out of office uh, come November. So we're we're happy that the, the court decided in that direction. Uh, many uh, of the young people, there's close to a million of them, were really afraid that they were going to have to go underground and or be deported. And as a result of the court decision, I think that we're now going to have another opportunity to resolve this legislatively. And that's what the court said. Send it back to us. They send it back to us. And I think we should be able to resolve it if the Senate acts on it. So pressure should be bared on the Senate to act on the legislation that we passed in the House of Representatives. And from what I understand, that if the administration continues to pursue this and then presents a more well-thought-out plan, uh, it could make it harder for states then to prevail in court. Is that the case? Well, I don't know if there's time for them to do uh, what the court prescribed. Uh, what the court prescribed uh, will take some uh, significant time in implementation, and I don't think that time is on their side. That's why many experts seem to suggest and recommend that uh, the executive branch uh, do not does not have really the time or the right to act before the November election. That if they cannot, if this matter cannot be resolved legislatively before November that it should be taken up by whoever wins uh, the election in November. I want to shift gears because you released a very uh, a comprehensive proposal uh, a short while ago. Um, but before I get to that, I want to just uh, read for our listeners uh, a portion of a column that you posted in The Hill just a few days ago and then ask you about your proposal. You had written that as a member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, I'm proud to stand with my Congressional Black Caucus colleagues to demand justice and call for an end to the police brutality and targeting of African-Americans around the nation. You, and just a little more, now is the time for systemic and transformational change of America's policing system to transition away from a policing first model. Can you talk a little about uh, what was called the Harlem Manifesto, your 10-point plan. Sure. Uh, the manifesto really is a compilation of all the bills, including some which I've introduced and co-sponsored, uh, that pertain to uh, police reform and some criminal justice reform policies as well. Uh, and seven of the bills have been included in this package that is being discussed right now as I speak to you, uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, some of them include, of course, uh, banning and penalizing, have severely penalizing not just the chokehold, but also the knee, because you know that once the chokehold got uh, 
attention during the Eric Garner killing. Uh, it was replaced really systematically by the knee. And so that any any tactic that adds pressure to uh, the respiratory system and leads to death uh, should be considered illegal and should be severely penalized. That's one. Uh, also, demilitarizing the police. The police uh, has military weapons and equipment. Um, that should not be the case in urban America. You know, the, we have the National Guard, we have the Army. There is no reason why local police officers should be walking around with, like soldiers, uh, in the middle of a war zone. And that leads to division, that leads, leads to uh, a lack of understanding and prejudgments uh, that are not conducive to a good relationship between the community and the police departments. In addition to that, there is a particular bill that I've introduced, which I think is very important. Uh, the law, the language of the law, uh, says that in order to convict an officer, you have to show willful neglect, uh, willful intent, as opposed to reckless intent. And willful intent it has a very high standard in a court of law. So in many cases uh, involving these killings, Police officers have gotten off because of the way the law is written. So uh, this package of legislation proposes to change that from willful intent to reckless intent, which is a lower threshold to meet in a court of law. Uh, No-knock warrants are going to be eliminated. Immunity also will be uh, done away with. So it's really a very comprehensive uh, reform package, one that's gaining a lot of uh, attention and a lot of support. It will pass the House, and uh, we will push to ensure that the Senate takes that up as well. And we've been we've been witnessing here in a city and state level in New York that our legislative bodies have been taking uh, action on some of these measures. Are you heartened by this? Do you think they're not going far yes, enough? Yes. Well, uh, let me say to you that some of these issues are also local and state. Uh, issues that must be addressed, and I'm happy to see that the state legislature took up uh, a, a significant number of issues, and the city council also did as well. Uh, so we have to really to change the culture in police departments across the country. We must uh, approach it at all three levels of government, municipal, state, and, of course, federal, uh, to ensure that the the culture of aggressiveness, the culture of brutality uh, that often permeates a police precinct. There may be good cops there. I'm sure there are good cops in every precinct, but this culture is overwhelming and it's domineering, and it places them in a position where they act and think and act in a certain way. And in order to, to break this, we must take it up at all three levels. So I'm happy to see that the city council is doing some of it, uh, the state uh, legislature as well, and we're doing our best to do it here at uh, Congress. And I I'm glad you talked about that because I'm broadcasting from Queens right now, and we had another incident after there's been such awareness about chokeholds and the concern about them, and then yet we still had another incident within the last few days. Uh, according to reports, I believe that the officer in Queens was going to be uh, suspended or action taken against him. Why do you think this still continues, even when there's such broad awareness of, and resistance to chokeholds? Because it's an intricate part of their 
culture. And I may say that uh, there has to be very distinct training in the academy to uh, ensure that they don't re- they don't resort to this type of tactic, uh, whether it is the knee or the chokehold tactics that put pressure on the air cavity and leads to death. And so there has to be a clear effort, in, in, in as well as as uh, the laws that will prevent and penalize it, but a clear effort to also train the police officer in a way that he or she knows that this is not the way to go. But again, the, the culture of aggressiveness in law enforcement across the country uh, is one that must change, and it must change at every level of government. So we've got just a few minutes left, and I've been very happy to have you on the show. Uh, You know, when you look at the landscape across our country right now, we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with uh, rising anger over the deaths of so many individuals at the hands of police. Our country seems to be at a pivotal moment. And obviously, as you are well aware, we have an election uh, that is taking place this year. What do you, where do you see us going in the next few months as we look ahead uh, towards Election Day, towards that November date when voters head to the polls? I think there will be a massive turnout to replace Donald Trump. Uh, his negligence in the handling of the pandemic right now as we speak, there are states that are seeing dramatic spikes in the number of people testing positive and dying. States like Texas and and, and, and Florida are having a a difficult time. Uh, The deaths continue to occur. At the end of all of this, this could be as many as 200,000 Americans dead because of this pandemic. The president failed to take it seriously and failed to take strong action from the very beginning. We see other countries uh, that had far less resources that handled it in a much efficient way and a, and a better way. And so I think that that uh, uh, also the, the George Floyd uh, killing has awakened uh, young people uh, across America, not just people, young people of color, but uh, all young people. I think they will they will rush uh, to the polls. And I think that Donald Trump has seen his last year as a sitting president. And I also look at this election in such a different light now that I worry that there are going to be so the, the voting patterns will be significantly different if the virus is still very much a part of our society. I think of the obstacles many of my friends and colleagues uh, faced in even getting absentee ballots here within the last few weeks to be able to vote in some of these elections. As we move ahead, do you expect that Congress will take up uh, new voting reforms so that it makes it easier uh, and for people to vote uh, this fall? Well, we must support our postal services. It starts with that, because if we don't have a reliable, well-funded postal service, uh, we won't be able to be we won't be able to vote by mail. Um, but in addition to that, uh, you know, we have to uh, take. Uh, very practical uh, measures to ensure that access to voting is easier, that, uh, that there's, there's a good voter turnout, that there's no voter suppression across any state in the country, uh, and that voting is made easier for everybody. I thought that uh, the vote-by-mail effort, although we face 
tremendous hurdles in New York. I wasn't I wasn't able to vote by mail because I got my application came to be like four days before the primary. So I, I decided not to return it. I obviously wasn't going to get my ballot before primary day and, and, and went ahead and voted on primary day. Many people never got their ballot in the mail. Most people got their application on time, but they weren't able to get the turnaround time to be to vote by mail. But the early voting process was also very robust. I, in my district, we saw a significant increase uh, in early voting. And so I'm hopeful that these kinds of efforts will, will also uh, prove to be successful across the country. So, Congressman Espaillat, uh, I want to thank you for appearing on the show. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, they can go to my website, my uh, my, my website, my Twitter account, Espa- Rep Espaillat. They can uh, call my offices, 663-3900, if they have an issue, 212. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll answer. We're still working virtually. We're still working remotely. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to open in a couple of weeks all our three offices, but we have folks that will return your calls and answer to your questions. Thank you. Congressman Espaillat, thank you so much for appearing today on WBAI. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I was just talking with Congressman Adriano Espaillat about the Supreme Court decision regarding DACA and also uh, his plan to combat uh, police police abuse throughout our our country. So earlier today, if you had not heard, uh, Mayor de Blasio talked about expanded testing for COVID-19 offered by the city's health and hospital system. And officials announced that we soon could enter that next phase, that next stage of reopening on July 6th given that the epidemic in the city continues to be on the decline. But officials continue to stress uh, that we have to get tested. If we're going to be able to track the spread of the virus, they stress it is important and that we should not become complacent, that we still should adhere to many of those measures that they have promoted for the, for the last few months, such as wearing masks and remaining socially distant from each other. So that's going to bring me to my next guest. I'll ask Reggie if we have him on the line right now. Great. That's bringing me to my next guest. And that guest is Andrew Wallach, uh, ambulatory care chief at NYC Health and Hospitals and a physician at Bellevue Hospital. Welcome to WBAI. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? All right. And thank you so much for joining me uh, today on BAI. I talked a little about the mayor today again. Uh, stressing the need for expanded testing for COVID-19 uh, through the city's health and hospital system. Uh, can you talk a little about uh, how the city is doing? Because I'm seeing that the numbers are getting uh, much, they're improving significantly. Where do we stand right now? Yeah, so I have to say uh, I'm incredibly happy and proud of uh, my fellow New Yorkers uh, due to the fact that people had been adhering um, to social distancing and wearing face coverings in public, uh, the transmission of our virus uh, in New York City remains incredibly low at a rate of approximately 2%. In addition, um, as we build out additional testing sites, uh, more New Yorkers are coming in and getting tested. Uh, currently, we're um, testing approximately 20,000 20 to 30,000 New Yorkers each day 
um, for the COVID virus. So this is really uh, terrific. Uh, we want even more people to come out. We have a target of testing 50,000 uh, New Yorkers per day by August 1st. And, and what has been just incredible is watching press conferences from uh, from Washington D.C. and hearing comments from the vice president, who seems to who has seemed to say that it's the media that's sounding the alarm bells about a second wave. That they're you know suggesting that we should downplay this. When you hear things like that, and and you understand that many New Yorkers might be seeing those comments. How do you counter that? What do you want to convey to people right now, particularly as New York City? gets, you know, moves towards even this next stage of reopening. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Look, we here in New York City uh, were devastated uh, very early uh, by the COVID pandemic, and we certainly don't want to return to any way, shape, or form of what we experienced here in March and April. So it's really critical to use numbers to help us with our path forward. So things that we look at on a daily basis include looking at patients who present to our emergency departments throughout the city with influenza-like illnesses that would be consistent with COVID-19. We look at the admissions to our hospitals for patients with COVID-19. And then most importantly, as we continue to expand testing, we look at our testing numbers and specifically the results of that testing. We want to follow all of these metrics so that we know that we are able to continue to maintain our current status which is in that suppression phase of the, um, of the pandemic. And being in that suppression phase is really important because what that indicates is that we have very low-level uh, transmission of the virus, and that's what we need to maintain in order to prevent a resurgence in the fall. So I know we have limited time, and what has been fascinating to me is the contact tracing process because I've wondered if I, you know, I use myself as an example, you know, if I had tested positive, trying to think back over time of everyone I've connected with, can you tell, talk to, tell listeners about what exactly contact tracing is and what are the types of things they would need to think about to be able to provide you with the information you would need? Sure. So um, as you correctly alluded to, um, the New York City Test and Trace Corps, of which the contact tracing is a key element, really is the vehicle that we are going to allow New York to continue to reopen safely uh, and prevent, uh, again, a resurgence uh, in the spread of COVID-19. So contact tracing in and of itself involves finding people who tested positive, right, uh, for the virus. Um, and then we want to ask them to stay away from other people, right, so that they can't further spread the virus. So in order to do this, we have hired thousands of contact tracers. Uh, many of these folks are from the neighborhoods hardest hit by the virus. We want to make sure that the core meets the needs of New Yorkers from all backgrounds. Um, towards that end, we're using interpreters. But when you get contacted uh, by one of our um, contact tracers, most importantly, they're going to want to know how you're doing. You have a positive test. How are you feeling? Do you need a higher level of health care? Do you need to come to an emergency room? Do you need clinical advice? That is the first and most important thing we're going to be doing when we reach out to individuals. After that, we're going to make sure that you have the ability to self-isolate or self-separate from others, ideally in your home if you can do that. But if you're unable to do that safely in your home, we're going to connect you with our hoteling service where we will provide free hotel services for you so that you will be able to self-separate 
in a safe manner. So most importantly, we want to make sure that people have the ability to self-separate when they have a positive test. Now, we recognize that people oftentimes will be doing this in their homes, um, and in order to do that successfully and safely, we're going to provide wraparound services for those individuals. Do you need medications delivered to your home? Do you need groceries delivered? Um, do you need wellness support? We will provide all of those services so that people can do this effectively uh, either at home or if they can't do it there, even with the wraparound services, get them into a hotel. And uh, as we talk about even the initial testing, you know, I polled a number of my friends, asked them, what are your questions when it comes to testing? And one of the most common questions I've gotten is, is there a limit to how many tests one person could or should take? You know, how does that work? Because, for example, if I get tested now, but then I go outside and I, I sense I'm in a larger gathering and I feel somewhat unsafe, should I keep going back? Like, what, what do you recommend people do? Yeah, that's a really great question. You've got some smart friends. Um, so first and <laughs> foremost, what, what we want to tell New Yorkers is I want everybody to come in and get tested, right? And then that's absolutely correct. Um, there is no limit to the number of diagnostic tests that people can have. And certainly, if you've been in large gatherings outdoors, if you come into contact with somebody who has known COVID-19, or maybe you're in a high-risk industry, like you work in a residential congregate setting, uh, like a nursing home or a shelter. Absolutely, we want those individuals to come back and get tested. If you're going to visit an elderly friend or family member who is particularly vulnerable to COVID-19, we want you to come back and get repeat tested uh, before you go and visit that individual. So the message that we really are sending is come and get tested, but it is no longer one and done. Uh, if you have ongoing risk or if there's any concern, come on back and get repeat testing. It's free of charge. It's available at over 200 clinics and locations throughout all five boroughs in the city, and it's free. And as I wrap up, where should people go? Where, where do you recommend they go to get this information to know where they should even go to get tested? Yeah, great question again. I would say if people want to learn more, uh, about Test and Trace New York. I know you asked about contacts and, and trying to understand how to recall, you know, who you've come into contact with. Um, a really good resource is the testandtrace.nyc. It's a website. will give you all that information, and it will also be able to link you to testing centers in your neighborhood. Alternatively, if you don't feel facile with using a smartphone or a computer, you can pick up a phone and dial 311. The operators at 311 will be able to connect you to a testing center in your neighborhood. And then also you can go to nyc.gov slash COVID test. And if you go to that website, you can type in your um, home address and it will tell you all the testing sites that are in your neighborhood and close by. So very easy to find a testing center that's located close to your home uh, where you can go and get tested. Andrew Wallach, Ambulatory Care Chief at NYC Health and Hospitals and Physician at Bellevue Hospital. Thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So you have been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Andrew Wallach from NYC Health and Hospitals about contact tracing. I, I'm just fascinated about the whole process because I've always been of this mindset that, you know, we don't know what we don't know, and many people have not been tested. It is 
you know, I have not personally been tested because largely I feel I've been, I've avoided large gatherings. I've stayed inside for most of the last three months. I am going antsy in this nicer weather, but I do plan to get tested within the next week or two because I'm going to start going to more client meetings now uh, and trying to adhere to as much social distancing measures uh, as, as I could. Uh, and I would encourage our guests to also consider uh, whether if you have questioned if you're going outside, if you have not been in large gatherings, to consider that. One uh, insightful thing that I should note, it was reported that the city had said that they're not seeing a, a surge in new cases uh, that they suspected could happen because of the large uh, demonstrations that had taken place across the city within the last few weeks. So that that is encouraging. And just for the latest numbers, and then I'll get to my next guest, uh, New York had just reported uh, that there were uh, 24,800 total statewide deaths of New Yorkers uh, who had tested positive for COVID-19. There were only 17. We were down. I mean, still num- people, even I'm giving these numbers this way, still individuals. Uh, there were 17 more fatalities in New York yesterday. But hospitalizations have also dropped now below 1,000 for the first time in more than three months, uh, according to the city. Uh, so uh, that is a significant improvement uh, from what we have seen uh, in recent weeks. So now I'm going to get to a very special guest who, given our tech issues that we had a few weeks ago, I felt horrible. We could not have him on live. I'm incredibly happy to have uh, New York City Controller Scott Stringer back on the show. He's got a storied career in public service. He is a former assemblyman. That is how I met him uh, decades ago, uh, former Manhattan Borough president. He's considering, he has not announced, he's considering a run to become our city's next mayor. But as of now, in his current role, he keeps tabs on the city's budget and the financial solvency of our city. He audits city agencies. He handles claims against the city and much more. That's the work of the city's controller's office. Scott Stringer, welcome to WBAI. Well, it's great to be on the show and uh, nice to be with everybody. Thank you. And it's it's great to hear your voice this time. So thank you. <laughs> I know. It's, we made it. <laughs> so we're now in this process of reopening. We've just started phase two. We're talking about phase three, uh, you know, but we're also at the same time witnessing an increase in cases in a number of states. So do you feel that this has been too soon for the city and state, or is this being rolled out properly? I think we have done an amazing job as New Yorkers, uh, social distancing, making smart decisions. You know, we're opening now. We didn't open back in May when so many other states did. They listened to Trump science, which is no science at all. And we were very thoughtful in linking science and health to the economy. And that's what we have to do. People say to me, well, should we just open the economy? And I'm, I'm, I'm say, I always say, yes, slowly, carefully, and strategically. And as we look at the phases, that is what we have to do. We have to align our contact tracing and our testing because that's the first line of looking at surge. And that is why I've said to the mayor, be careful staying away from the health department, despite your uh, petty peeve with them. We need to put the best people in the tracing contact tracing unit because this is how we're going to make sure things are safe. And if we do see a surge, 
in a particular borough or particular area, we're then going to have to rush to shut that down uh, while we continue building the economy. I'm glad you mentioned contact tracing because I know when I was with the controller's office, we would see things like the front page New York Times story and immediately talk about, hey, let's audit this. Let's see how this went. Is this the type of thing, given the concerns you might have read about in the New York Times, the type of thing you would look into uh, as far as how this has been resolved? Well, we are uh, uh, currently investigating uh, the administration, the city agencies from the standpoint of when did this begin? When did the city know? What did the city do about it? And it's not to get anyone in trouble, but we really need to understand uh, how this pandemic was seeded in the city. What were the warning signs? What was the coordination between different agencies, if there was coordination. We have to look at why schools weren't shut down a week or two earlier, despite everybody saying that was the smart thing to do from a health perspective. There's a lot of discussion about the amount of lives that were lost because of indecision. And look, we know that this could come back. This may be with us if we don't have a vaccine or a viral uh, uh, medication uh, to, you know, to help. So that's my job as controller. We have to look at these issues. The, the mayor has not turned over documents that we've requested. So we've, it, we're in the process of subpoenaing those documents. And listen, I'll get to the bottom of it as I always do. It just may take some time. I certainly want to get to the city's budget and the economy. I mean, you are the, I always uh, enjoyed when people would call us in the controller's office, the watchdog. Uh, and, and, but you are, you are watching over the city's finances. So when you talk, when you hear about the mayor talking about possibly upwards of what, 22,000 potential layoffs of, of city employees and other uh, ideas they have to cut this budget, what do you think should be done? What are some of the solutions to resolve our budgetary challenges? Well, look, we do have budgetary challenges. Uh, you know, we were the first to come out and say we're losing $7 billion in revenue. Uh, we offered a solution to get us to a balanced budget. I said that we have to do a PEG program, which is look for agency efficiencies so we could realize savings that could go towards balancing this budget. It, Incredible as it may sound, but the mayor hasn't done those robust efficiencies. He hasn't done that in city agencies. He hasn't done that in the police department budget. And so he wants to go the easy route. He wants to just have unlimited borrowing, basically, because he doesn't want to make the tough decisions. And, you know, with borrowing comes high debt service that could really infringe on future investments in communities of color communities victimized by COVID, and I'm going to just stay on top of him uh, to make sure that he makes the tough decisions, and we are careful because this is uh, a crisis that could have real implications for communities hit hardest by the virus, and he has to recognize that easy solutions is not his job right now. It's bringing the council and the mayor together. Uh, I do think we have to find those efficiencies. There's still money that is in the uh, in safety reserves. Uh, I've said to the mayor, let's refinance a lot of our debt, move that into savings. Now we could do that with them. Uh, they haven't called to say they're interested in that. So look, I'm going to continue to call it as I see it. Speak truth to power. 
Uh, in the meantime, the one thing he should not do is balance the budget on our city workforce and on the children of this city. Uh, the fact that he first went to the students, to the kids who need summer jobs, tried to cut that. Uh, some council members blew the whistle and said, hey, wait a minute. So that got held up, but that's still on the chopping block. Then he went to the frontline workers and said, we're going to cut the frontline workers. But meanwhile, he hasn't done a 4% peg in almost every of the city agencies. He hasn't cut uh, a 4% like I have in the mayor's office. So a lot of this is just a lack of leadership right now, and that has to change. So, uh, you know, I know back when I, eons ago, when I was with the controller's office, we always talked about how the city needed to establish a rainy day fund, that there were steps that in better times, the city should start to plan for the inevitable downturn. I mean, we couldn't have predicted a pandemic like that. I mean, or maybe some people did uh, predict that there could be a pandemic, but you know, to prepare for these tougher economic times. You know, is that one of the things that you have called for in the past, a rainy day fund? Well, I have gone to the city council every year, finance committee, in good times over the last few years, and I've said respectfully that they needed to build up the cash reserves, especially in boom times, because we never know what's going to come our way. We couldn't have predicted 9-11. We couldn't have predicted... Hurricane Sandy, who could have predicted the Great Recession. And every time we've had an episodic event in the last 20 years, we have drawn down our savings uh, on an emergency basis. And I remember going to the Council Finance Committee meeting in the end of February saying to them, look, whatever you do in this budget, we have to move our savings from 8.9% to 12% and hopefully up to 18% because we never know what's going to come our way. You know, I had no idea that while I was saying this, this pandemic was being seeded throughout our city. But I really wish the mayor and the council had had a more robust savings plan because we wouldn't be in this position today if we had saved more. And so that's water under the bridge. Doesn't pay to complain about it, but it is a roadmap to remind ourselves, whoever the next mayor is or the next controller, but first and foremost, we save money because we need to make sure that when a crisis happens, we don't go after young people. We don't balance the budget uh, on the backs of city workers, that we actually have money to weather these storms. So uh, when you were going to beyond a few weeks ago, it was when we were right in the thick of all the demonstrations. And as and even though we're still seeing some demonstrations, it's not. Uh, you know, as uh, uh, as large scale here in the city as it had been during that concentrated period. Why do you think we did see such outrage here in the city and also anger towards the mayor at that time? Look, the protests to me are very meaningful. Uh, A next generation of young people, diverse coalition of young people taking to the streets saying very loudly, Black Lives Matter, the death of George Floyd and the people who came before him and others uh, is a recognition that so much over-policing and unfortunately police brutality has resulted in the death of people of color, uh, necks broken, people choked. And I have to say, the protesters, they're the ones who got 
change in recent weeks. The 50A law in Albany was about the protest movement. The city council, they they held on to legislation. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you there? Yes, I am. And, and that's a recognition of the great work that they did. And it's not the politicians. So I want to continue to invest in the protesters. When the mayor tried to curfew and let the police do what they wanted, it changed our um, it changed the, his relationship with his people. Um, so I want to get to politics in the last few minutes that we have. Um, Tuesday's results. We saw some uh, significant progress by the progressive movement here in the city. Uh, one of the candidates, I believe you supported, Jamal Bowman, did extremely well. Talk to, talk to me about a little about you know, where the progressive movement is going right now and what led you to support someone like Jamal uh, Bowman versus uh, the incumbent, Elliot Engel. Look, I think that uh, people like myself who uh, love serving in government has to be mindful that we have to usher in the next generation of progressive leadership. And I was very proud to be one of the allies of the candidates who challenged the Senate Democrats who caucus with Republicans. I was proud to campaign for uh, Alessandra Biazzi and Jessica Ramos and Bob Jackson. Uh, so many people who made a difference uh, in those elections. And before that, Yuli knew uh, a progressive star. And I could just continue down the line of all of our allies. And Jamal Bowman is a continuation of my belief that we need to send strong, diverse leadership into government, people who will challenge authority, who will challenge what is considered norms and raise the roof on the issues of the day. And I have been very proud to be associated with this movement. And I've been proud to put my name on the line because, you know, talk is cheap. You can talk a good game being progressive, but when it comes to challenging the political establishment, uh, we need people to step up and people have stepped up. Uh, And it's been pretty incredible. And election night was just another way of looking at who got elected and what they're going to do to make change. Did the results, as you see them right now, did that encourage you more about your potential uh, for running, you know, your potential success in running for mayor? I think that the this city does believe in progressive politics. I think they want a progressive mayor who's going to speak to the issues of education, housing, how we reimagine the, the, the economy, uh, how we invest, invest finally in communities of color, especially COVID bringing out the disparities that have been managed but not solved. And so I want to be a candidate that is also going to raise issues but also has the government experience to actually affect change so that it's not just protesting outside on the steps of City Hall, but building a progressive government that's effective within City Hall. And while I'm not announcing uh, my candidacy today, I do believe that uh, I will be able to build a intergenerational multiracial coalition uh, to focus on policy and, and, and wage a campaign that 
if elected, we will govern the hell out of this city in a competent way, strategic way, but most importantly, in a way that deals with issues of systemic racism, uh, the lack of affordability, and we've got to make sure we help our children and we help our most vulnerable. And as a parent uh, or as an older dad, I like to say, of an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old in public school, I want to do everything I can for the kids, not just mine, but the kids who uh, we're never going to meet, who really need strong leadership so we can get them to be where they need to be. And on that note, I want to thank you for appearing on WBAI. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about your office and the work that you do? Well, just just go. please just go online or give us a call. Uh, you know, we're, we're telecommuting. But the office is very much engaged on budget policy. I'm very proud of this office, and I think we've taken it to a, a, another level. Not that you weren't great when you were there, but uh, <laughs> we're, 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 try, we're trying to elevate the game. But it's really great to be on this show uh, where everyone is tuning in to hear about what's really going on in this town. So thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for being with us today, Controller Stringer. Talk to you soon. So uh, throughout the pandemic, WBAI has been bringing you the voices of New Yorkers like Scott Stringer uh, who are confronting this new normal, how the pandemic has impacted uh, uh, their lives in every, you know, from every sector. And I've been so fortunate that even though she's not an ongoing co-host of the show anymore, uh, my colleague Celeste Katz has been doing these amazing segments, and she, one of the, her first people that she spoke with was actually Scott Stringer after his mother had passed away amid the pandemic. These pieces, which are all on WBAI's website, are really worth a listen, and I encourage you, uh, after the show today, when you get a moment to please like go to WBAI.org and listen to some of these. They're, they're incredibly moving. So I'm just very happy right now uh, that even though we are not sitting next to each other the way we used to with our He's touching and laughing and really enjoying the conversations we were having that Celeste is back with me today. Celeste, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Jeff. So talk about the series and how you thought of this idea and a little about what, you know, how you chose the subjects that you would interview. Well, I really felt as the pandemic was starting to take hold that I wanted to do something. I wanted to not be a spectator and sort of watch this from the sidelines, but at the same time, you know, not being sort of posted at City Hall or being on the uh, health and hospitals beat or being at the state capitol in Albany. You know, I felt like there were people who were doing that and were doing that well, and I wanted to tell a different kind of story. And so we... um in speaking to Linda Perry, the news director, uh, you know, tried to figure out a way that we could tell these very personal and moving and individual stories of New Yorkers sort of, uh, you know, as we say, weathering the storm, living through this pandemic. And I also wanted to do it in a way that put the focus very much on the people who were telling the stories. So if you notice in each segment, except for me uh, introducing the topic and then, you know, doing a short outro, my voice doesn't even appear in the segments. It is entirely the voice of the people that uh, that we're hearing from, sort of explaining what life is like for New Yorkers in this crisis. Did anything surprise you when you talked with these people? Were there revelations you hadn't expected? 
You know, I think people were very forthcoming. I think that there were people that uh, experienced the pandemic in very different ways, maybe ways that, you know, one person hadn't thought of. I tried to uh, speak to people who were uh, having sort of more unique experiences, you know, seeing things and doing things that might be uh, a microcosm of what New York was going through as a whole, but also sort of highlighting different segments of the population and how this was affecting them. Uh, For example, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I spoke to Controller Stringer. Unfortunately, he lost his mother during the pandemic, and he was very grateful to the the doctors and the EMS workers that tried to save her life. But, uh, you know, he experienced a a sort of stunning personal loss. Uh, He talked about that, I think, uh, you know, in a very candid way. But uh, I spoke to uh, another young man, for example, who is a married gay man who got sick with uh, COVID, got better and was asked to come back and donate plasma because, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about whether um, plasma from people who have recovered could be used to help people who are getting sick. And when he got to the place, to actually go through and give the donation, he was turned away because he's married to another man. And so that's not necessarily something that uh, every single person in New York thinks about, but it's it's something that affected him just beyond getting sick, which was bad enough. But uh, it's something that, you know, affected how he saw the pandemic and how he tried to find other ways to help people because he couldn't do that just because of who he's married to. So, I mean, these interviews, and I'm glad you pointed that out about the structure of them, that other than your intro and outro, people are just hearing them in their own words. Uh, They're just incredible to listen to. And these people are talking about how their lives have changed since the virus shut down most of our country. Our listeners have not heard from you in a while, and I know we only have, what, two minutes left. What have you been up to? What has your life been like since the pandemic hit? Uh, aside from producing the radio series, which I'm, I'm very yes. happy. I hope yeah. it's a small, a small contribution to the, the, the sort of history of this pandemic. Uh, I've been doing my regular appearances on Australian Broadcasting Corporation radio. Um, I've actually been reporting and co-writing a book on voting, an ebook on voting. So more, uh, more on that. Stay tuned. That's been keeping me very busy and, uh, just, you know, generally, the same way you are trying to uh, stay away from crowded places and uh, be careful about about how I carry on my life and to sort of be cognizant that we're at this uh, this really perilous time in our lives, trying to keep my spirits up just like everybody else and hope we uh, hope we get through this okay. And you're still in that first year of wedded bliss, I believe. I am. I am. It seems like the 10th year. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, it is. Uh, and, and I do. I mean, it, it is. It is. Uh, it's a good thing. I'm, I'm having a good time and uh, I'm, I'm happy I made that decision. It's it's nice to have somebody to to go through with, uh, you know, to go through this with. But uh, I do miss you, Jeff. I do miss sitting next to you and uh, having our knees touch. <laughs> Celeste. Thank you so much for helping me close out the show today. It is wonderful for you to be back here on WBAI on Driving Forces. I can't wait to hear the next piece from you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Give to WBAI.org. Yes, please, everyone. As we close the show, if you want to support WBAI, please go 
uh, to give to. That's the number two, WBAI.org. We are still in our fundraising drive, and it's very important. We'd love for you to help out. I want to thank our guests, Congressman Adriano Espaillat, uh, also, Andrew Wallach from NYC Health and Hospitals and uh, New York City controller and potential mayoral candidate, Scott Stringer. Thank you so much for tuning in to WBAI today and have a great day.